Jag är här nu på Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Jag såg oss. Welcome to the 341st of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we'll be starting off with the 12th part of Wilmot's History of the Zulu War, and then I'll run part 6 of Three John Silent Stories. Let's head to that dark continent. It ought specially to be noted that the attack of the Zulus was a thorough surprise by an overwhelming force. No sentries had been posted, nor precautions of any kind taken, and at the time of the attack no carbines were loaded. Lieutenant Carey says that he did not notice the prince after he saw him mounting, and that he did not perceive any fighting when he'd looked around. General Wood and Colonel Buller met Lieutenant Carey and the other survivors of the party. These officers were at the time about six miles from camp, and four or five from Isalawanda Mountain, when they saw five white men riding as if for their lives under the hills on the right. So soon as the fugitives saw the general and his escort, they came up to them at the full gallop and told the dreadful news. By means of field glasses, three horses were seen being led off at a distance of about seven miles, accompanied by twenty or thirty Zulus on foot. It was then nearly five in the afternoon and too late to do anything. On the following morning, Whit Monday, the advanced guard of the Natal native contingent and Raf's horse pushed forward from Wood's camp to the scene of the disaster. They were joined there by squadrons of lancers and dragoons from General Newdigate. The search for bodies was not a long one. That of poor Rogers was found first, lying stark naked, riddled with assegai stabs and with a gash in the abdomen. Thirty yards distant was that of Abel, in the same condition. A wound in his right hand seemed to show that he had fought for his life at close quarters. Thirty yards or so from this, and in the donga, lay the corpse of the Prince Imperial. Surgeon Major Scott, specially deputed for the purpose by Lord Chelmsford, took charge of the body and proceeded to examine it. There was one longish wound on the right breast, which was evidently mortal. An assegai had pierced the right eye, and had at once either caused death or paralysis to pain. There were two wounds in the left side, and less serious ones all over the upper part of the chest. A long gash in the abdomen exposed the intestines, but had not injured them. Round the neck was a small gold chain, to which was attached a medal and an agnus die. These the Zulus had not dared to touch, as they look upon all such articles as charms to be dreaded. The body of the prince was then conveyed to camp, and those of the troopers were buried with religious ceremony. It is now necessary to furnish the evidence taken at the court-martial and the statement of Lieutenant Carey. The preliminary report was as follows. Quote, the court is of the opinion that Lieutenant Carey did not understand the position in which he stood towards the prince, and as a consequence failed to estimate aright the responsibility which fell to his lot. Colonel Harrison states that the senior combatant officer, Lieutenant Carey, D.A.Q.M.G., was as a matter of course in charge of the party, whilst on the other hand Carey says when alluding to the escort, I did not consider I had any authority over it, 
after the precise and careful instructions of Lord Chelmsford as to the position the prince held. As to his being invariably accompanied by an escort in charge of an officer, the court considers that the possibility of such a difference of opinion should not have existed between two officers of the same department. The court is of the opinion that Carey is much to blame for having proceeded on the duty in question with a portion only of the escort detailed by Colonel Harrison. The court cannot admit the irresponsibility for this on the part of Carey, inasmuch as he took steps to obtain the escort and failed in doing so. Moreover, the fact that Harrison was present upon the Italetsi range gave him the opportunity of consulting him on the matter, of which he failed to avail himself. The court, having examined the ground, is of the opinion that the selection of the kraal where the halt was made, and the horses were off-saddled, surrounded as it was by cover for an enemy and adjacent to difficult ground, showed a lamentable want of military prudence. The court deeply regrets that no effort was made after the attack to rally the escort, and to show a front to the enemy, whereby the possibility of aiding those who had failed to make good their retreat might have been ascertained. Signed by General Marshall, Colonel Mathers, 94th Regiment, Major Le Grice, R.I. End quote. On this report, a court-martial was summoned by Lord Chelmsford for the trial of Lieutenant Carey, for having misbehaved before the enemy on the 1st of June 1879, when in command of an escort in attendance on the Prince, who was making reconnaissances in Zululand in having, when the Prince and escort were attacked by the enemy, galloped away and in not having attempted to rally them or otherwise defend the prince. The court, under the presidency of Colonel Glynn, consisted of Colonels Whitehead, Courtney, Harness, Major Bouverie, and Major Anstruther. Judge Advocate Brander prosecuted, and Captain Crookenden, R.A., was for the defence. When the court opened, the plan of the ground was proved. Colonel Grubb said the prince gave the order to off-saddle at the kraal and prepare to mount, the prince mounted. After the volley, he saw Carey putting spurs to his horse, and he did the same. He saw Abel fall, and Rogers trying to get a shot at the Zulus. The tock passed him and said, Put spurs to your horse, boy, the prince is down. He looked round, and saw the prince under his horse. A short time after, the prince's horse came up, and he, Grubb, caught it. No orders were given to rally. The tock was called and said, the prince told the natives to search the kraals, and finding no one there, they off-saddled. At the volley he mounted, but dropping his carbine, stopped to pick it up. In remounting, he could not get his leg over the saddle. He passed the prince and said in French, Hasten to mount your horse. The prince did not answer. He saw the prince's horse treading on his leg. The prince was in command of the party. He believed Carey and the prince would have passed on different sides of a hut in a fast flight and it was possible that Carey might have failed to see that the prince was in difficulty. It was 250 yards from where he saw the prince down to the spot where he died. Trooper Cochrane was called and said, The prince was not in the saddle at the time of mounting. He saw about 50 yards off the prince running down the donga with 14 Zulus in close pursuit. Nothing was done to help him. He heard no orders given and did not tell Carey what he had seen until some time after. He was an old soldier. He did not think any rally could have been made. The court was then adjourned to the next day. On reassembling, the first witness was called. 
Sergeant Willis, who stated that he had seen Trooper Rogers lying on the ground by the side of his horse, close to the kraal as he left the spot. He thought he saw the prince wounded at the same time that Trooper Abel threw up his arms. He thought the prince might have been dragged to the place where he was found after his death, and that a rally might have been made twenty yards beyond the donga. Colonel Harrison, being called, stated that Carey was senior combatant officer, and must therefore have been in command of the party. Carey volunteered to go to the reconnaissance to verify certain points of his sketch. The prince was ordered to go report more fully on the ground. He had given the prince into Carey's charge. Examined by the court, Colonel Harrison stated that when the prince was attached to his department, he was told not to treat him as a royal personage in the matter of escort, but as any other officer, taking due precaution against any possible danger. Dr. Scott, the prince's medical attendant, was then called, and stated that the prince was killed by 18 assegai wounds, any five of which would have been fatal. There were no bullet wounds. The prince died where the body was found. This closed the case for the prosecution. The defence called again. Colonel Harrison, who testified to Carey's abilities as a staff officer, and said he had every confidence in him. Colonel Belairs was also called, and stated that it was in consequence of the occurrence of the 1st of June that Carey had been deposed from his staff appointment the day previous to his trial. Lieutenant Carey here submitted that his case had been prejudged, and that he had been punished before his trial. The following is Lieutenant Carey's statement. Quote, On the 31st of May, I was informed by Colonel Harrison, AQMG, that the Prince Imperial was to start on the 1st of June to ride over the road selected by me for the advance of the column, for the purpose of selecting a camping ground for the 2nd of June. I suggested at once that I should be allowed to go with him, as I knew the road and wanted to go over it again for the purpose of verifying certain points. To this Colonel Harrison consented, reminding me that the Prince was going at his own request to do this work, and that I was not to interfere with him in any way. For our escort, six Europeans of Bettington's horse and six Basutos were ordered. Bettington's men were paraded at 9am, but owing to some misunderstanding the Basutos did not turn up, and the prince being desirous of proceeding at once, we went without them. On arriving at the ridge between Italezzi and Incensi, I suggested waiting for them, but the prince replied, Oh no, we're quite strong enough, or words to that effect. We proceeded on our reconnaissance from there, halting about half an hour on a high hill overlooking Idiotiosi, for the prince to sketch, and from there the country was visible for miles, and no sign of the enemy could be discovered. We then descended into the valley and, entering a corral, off-saddled, knee-haltering our horses. We had seen the deserted appearance of the country, and though the corral was to the right, surrounded by mealies, we thought there was no danger in encamping. If any blame is attributable to anyone for this, it is to me, as I agreed with the prince that we were perfectly safe. I'd been over this ground twice before and seen no one, and the brigade major of the cavalry brigade had ridden over it with only two or three men and laughed at me for taking so large an escort. We had with us a friendly Zulu, who in answer to my inquiries said no Zulus were about. I trusted in him, but kept a sharp lookout, telescope in my hand. In about an hour, that is at 3.40pm, the prince ordered us to saddle up. 
we went into the Mealies to catch our horses, but took at least ten minutes saddling. While doing so, the Zulu guide informed us he'd seen a Zulu in the distance, but as he did not appear concerned, I saw no danger. The prince was saddled up first, and seeing him ready, I mounted, the men not being quite ready. The prince then asked if we were all ready. They answered in the affirmative, and he gave the order, Prepare to mount. At this moment I turned round and saw the prince with his foot in the stirrup, looking at the men. Presently I heard him say, Mount, and turning to the men saw them vault into their saddles. At this moment my eyes fell on about twenty black faces in the mealies, twenty to thirty yards off, and I saw puffs of smoke and heard a rattling volley followed by a rush, with shouts of Isutu. There was at once a stampede. Two men rushed past me, and as everyone appeared to be mounted, I dug the spurs into my horse, which had already started of his own accord. I felt sure no one was wounded by the volley as I heard no cry, and I shouted out, Keep to the left, cross the donga and rally behind it. At the same time, I saw more Zulus in the melees on our left flank, cutting off our retreat. I crossed the donga behind two or three men, but could only get beyond one man, the others having ridden off. Riding a few hundred yards onto the rise, I stopped and looked round. I could see the Zulus after us and saw that the men were escaping to the right, and that no one appeared on the other side of the donga. The man beside me then drew my attention to the prince's horse, which was galloping away on the other side of the donga, saying, I fear the prince is killed, sir. I immediately said, Do you think it's any use going back? The trooper pointed to the mealies on our left, which appeared full of kaffirs, and said, He's dead long ago, sir. They assegai wounded men at once. I considered he had fallen near the kraal, as his horse was going from that direction, and it was useless to sacrifice more lives. I had but one man near me, and the others being some two hundred yards down the valley. I accordingly shouted to them to close to the left, and rode on to gain a drift over the Tombukala River, saying to the man at my side, We'll keep back towards General Wood's camp, not returning the same way we came, and then come back with some dragoons to get the bodies. We reached the camp about 6.30pm, When we were attacked, our carbines were unloaded, and to the best of my belief no shots were fired. I did not see the prince after I saw him mounting, but he was mounted on a swift horse, and I thought he was close to me. Besides the prince, we lost two troopers, as well as the friendly Zulu. Two troopers had been found between the Donga and the Kral, covered with Asagai wounds. They must have fallen in the retreat and been Asagai'd at once, as I saw no fighting when I looked round. End quote. A shudder of horror and reproachful regret passed through Natal. It was sorrowful that the prince should be killed, but doubly lamentable that he should fall by the assegais of savages when his comrades deserted him. In the army, the feeling of indignation and regret was particularly strong, and however desirous men felt to do justice, it was scarcely possible for human nature to be entirely free from prejudice in forming a judgment with regard to the conduct of those who had been with the prince on the fatal day of his death. The court-martial condemned Lieutenant Carey and sent him home under arrest, but a reaction of opinion subsequently took place. The Empress interceded for the unfortunate man and our own Queen was pleased to order his release from arrest. The death of the Prince Imperial was felt as a personal grief of every colonist. 
It spread gloom throughout the country, and recalled vividly the shock that followed the disaster at Isalawanda. The generous ardour with which the prince had given his services to the cause of the colonists seemed to have received a pitiful return. The heir of an empire was dead, and the news must go hence to a widowed mother who had made England her home. Every possible manifestation of grief and respect was paid. The military and the military authorities vied with the civil authorities and the people in doing honour to the illustrious dead. Natal went into mourning. When the corpse arrived at Peter Maritzburg, people of all classes crowded into the streets to show their respect by joining the procession. The Times of Natal tells us that on the 8th of June, at 1.15pm, a gun was fired from Fort Napier, announcing that the body had arrived within two miles of the city, and by two o'clock a number, which must have exceeded 3,000, had assembled at the place of rendezvous on the commercial road. Here the procession was formed, the military headed by Major General, the Honourable H. H. Clifford, Inspector General of Communications on one side, and civilians headed by His Excellency Sir Henry Bulwer, the Lieutenant Governor of the Colony, on the other. Thousands of people lined the way up to the place where the procession had to fall in, and some time was taken before all were in their places in the order above indicated. Following the civil authorities came the city guard, some sixty strong under Colonel Mitchell as general leader and J. H. Spence as district leader, and after them came a large number of the old fellows and foresters in the funeral insignia of their order. After this, the general public followed, all in mourning. The arrangements being completed amid the solemn booming of the minute guns and the tolling of the church bells, the gun carriage bearing the coffin was seen slowly coming down the hill, accompanied by the escort of regulars and mounted police which had come with it. As it approached, the military fell into their places, and there was a hush which spoke more eloquently than any words the feelings of the vast concourse of people as the body of the late prince approached. As the cortege passed, every hat was raised in respect, and the military presented arms. The coffin was wrapped in a large tricolour, and upon it was a helmet and sword, together with wreaths and roses and camillas, and a beautiful cross of violets, while the grey charger, draped with a black pall and the letter N on the corners, and with the boots reversed according to military custom, followed. The procession then formed in the order given above, Major General Clifford and the Lieutenant Governor being immediately in front while behind it were Fathers de Lacy and Baudry, the latter of whom had just come down with the body. In the procession were observed many clergy of the English Church and of other denominations, among them the Right Reverend Bishop Colonso, the Right Reverend Bishop Markery, Dean Green, Archdeacon Usherwood, the Reverend G. M. St. M. Ritchie, chaplain to the forces, etc., etc., the two valets of the late prince immediately followed the Catholic clergy. The pallbearers were Captain Willoughby, 21st Scots Fusiliers, Captain Fox, R.A., D.A.A.G., Major Russell, 12th Lancers, Lieutenant Colonel East, 57th Foot, D.Q.M.G., Lieutenant Colonel Stewart, R.E., and Colonel Riley, C.B., R.H.A., the personal staff in attendance upon Major General Clifford 
were Captain Fox, R.A.D.A.A.G., and Lieutenant Westmacott, 77th Regiment, A.D.C. General Bissett was also present in full uniform. Major Spaulding, D.A.A.G., acted as Adjutant General, in the absence of Colonel Belairs. Amongst the civil servants were the Attorney General, Honourable M.H. Galway, the Colonial Treasurer, Honourable Mr. Polkinghorne, the Surveyor General, Mr. P.C. Sutherland, M.D., the Mayor of Maritzburg, Mr. W. Francis, and the Town Councillors, Mr. W. Ackerman, M.L.C., and Mr. C.C. Griffin, M.L.C., and all the heads of departments who were not either absent from Maritzburg or prevented from being present by sickness. The Maritzburg Rifles assembled in full number under Lieutenant and Adjutant Schoons, and their band played the Dead March in Saul, adding greatly to the solemnity of the procession. It marched slowly up Commercial Road to the corner of Church Street, up which it turned, and then wheeled along Chapel Street into Long Market Street, arriving at the Roman Catholic School at about ten minutes before four. Here the coffin was taken from the gun carriage by the pallbearers and conveyed into the chapel, followed by as many of the procession as the building would hold, the military who were on the ground being formed into two lines outside the building. The Reverend Father Barrett met the procession at the door and together with Father de Lacey and Father Baudry officiated, reading a short service over the coffin, all present appearing deeply affected. The military were then drawn up outside the building, and His Excellency and other distinguished personages passed through the lines, and the doors of the building were then closed upon the mortal remains of the late lamented prince. The following special order had been issued by General Clifford. Wednesday, June 4th. The Inspector General of Lines of Communication and Base has received from His Excellency, the Lieutenant-General commanding, official confirmation of the calamity which has befallen the forces under his command, by the death and duty in the field of the late gallant young soldier, the Prince Imperial, Louis Napoleon, who, having in his military training been associated with the British Army, came out to this country to take part in the Zulu campaign. The Inspector General feels that he is carrying out the wishes of His Excellency, the Lieutenant General Commanding, now in Zululand, by thus recording the feelings of deep sorrow and sympathy experienced by every officer and man whose duty keeps him at his post in the colony with the loss thus sustained. The body of the unfortunate Prince will arrive here probably on Monday next, the ninth instant, en route to England. Arrangements will be made to receive it with all due respect and expression of sorrow. From the capital city of Peter Maritzburg, the body of the prince was conveyed to Durban, the seaport, and at the latter place the following eloquent special order was issued by the Assistant Adjutant General. 10th of June, 1879. The mortal remains of Prince Louis Napoleon will be carried tomorrow at half past nine a.m from the Roman Catholic Church in Durban to the wharf at Port Natal for embarkation in HMS Bodicea to England. In following the coffin which holds the body of the late Prince Imperial of France and paying to his ashes the final tribute of sorrow and honour, the troops in the garrison will remember, first, that he was the last inheritor of a mighty name and of a great military renown. Second, 
that he was the son of England's firm ally in dangerous days. Third, that he was the sole child of a widowed empress who is now left throneless and childless in exile on English shores. Deepening the profound sorrow and the solemn reverence that attaches to these memories, the troops will also remember that the Prince Imperial of France fell fighting as a British soldier. W.F. Butler, A.A. General, Base of Operations, Durban, Natal, South Africa. The Roman Catholic Church at Durban was transformed into a chapelle ardente, and the coffin remained there all night after its arrival. Solemn Requiem Mass was celebrated the next morning. The Natal Mercury tells us that by nine o'clock an immense crowd of persons had assembled outside the church where the gun carriage was in waiting, and every arrangement had been made for speedily forming the procession after the ceremony was over. The principal object of interest outside was the grey horse belonging to the late prince, which he had purchased from a Durban gentleman, and the groom in charge of it was busily engaged in answering questions put to him with regard to the late prince. The horse was saddled, and in just the same condition as it was when it came back riderless to the camp. The troops outside, waiting to take part in the procession, numbered altogether 700. The whole, as on the previous day, being under the command of Major Hutkinson, the commandant of the garrison. Every regiment doing service in South Africa was represented, including even the dragoons and lancers. At a quarter to ten, the doors of the church were thrown open and the coffin was brought to the gun carriage, the honour of carrying it having been conferred on Captain Hayes, Staff Paymaster, Captain Granville, Commissariat, Captain Young, Commissariat, Captain Bunker, Commissary Marsh, Ordnance, and Surgeon Major Leslie. The procession was constituted as follows. The band. The body. Guard of Honour, Paul Bearers. Chief Mourners. Guard of Honour, Paul Bearers. The military. Military and volunteers, friendly societies, public bodies, town guard, consular officers, heads of departments, archdeacon and clergy, members executive and legislative, mayor and town council, public schools, the public, and civilians were four deep. Having proceeded to the point, the coffin was conveyed by a small steamer to HMS Bodicea where it was taken on board and holstered into the hold of the vessel amid all the reverent marks of respect so fitting to the occasion. Monsieur Delique, correspondent of the Paris Viago, with two of the prince's attendants, accompanied the remains. And now it's time to listen to some silence. Some minutes passed, during which only the cat moved, and then there came a sharp change. Flame began to back towards the wall. He moved his head from side to side as he went, sometimes turning to snap at something almost behind him. They were advancing upon him, trying to surround him. His distress became very marked from now onwards, and it seemed to the doctor that his anger merged into genuine terror and became overwhelmed by it. The savage growl sounded perilously like a whine, and more than once he tried to dive past his master's legs as though hunting for a way of escape. He was trying to avoid something that everywhere blocked his way. This terror of the indomitable fighter impressed the doctor enormously, yet also painfully. 
stirring his impatience, for he had never before seen the dog show signs of giving in, and it distressed him to witness it. He knew, however, that he was not giving in easily, and understood that it was really impossible for him to gauge the animal's sensations properly at all. What Flame felt and saw must be terrible indeed to him to turn him all at once into a coward. He faced something that made him afraid of more than his life merely. The doctor spoke a few quick words of encouragement to him, and stroked the bristling hair, but without much success. The collie seemed already beyond the reach of comfort such as that, and the collapse of the old dog followed indeed very speedily after this. And Smoke, meanwhile, remained behind, watching the advance, but not at all joining in it, sitting, pleased and expectant, considering that all was going well and as it wished. It was kneading on the carpet with its front paws, slowly, laboriously, as though its feet were dipped in treacle. The sound its claws made as they caught in the threads was distinctly audible. It was still smiling, blinking, purring. Suddenly, the collie uttered a poignant short bark and leapt heavily to one side. His bared teeth traced a line of whiteness through the gloom. The next instant, he dashed past his master's legs, almost upsetting his balance, and shot out into the room where he went blunderingly wildly against walls and furniture. But that bark was significant. The doctor had heard it before and knew what it meant, for it was the cry of the fighter against odds, and it meant that the old beast had found his courage again. Possibly it was only the courage of despair, but at any rate the fighting would be terrific, and Dr. Silence understood too that he dared not interfere. Flame must fight his own enemies in his own way. But the cat, too, had heard that dreadful bark, and it, too, had understood. This was more than it had bargained for. Across the dim shadows of that haunted room there must have passed some secret signal of distress between the animals. Smoke stood up and looked swiftly about him. He uttered a piteous meow and trotted smartly away into the greater darkness by the windows. What his object was, only those endowed with the spirit-like intelligence of cats might know. But, at any rate, he had at last ranged himself on the side of his friend, and the little beast meant business. At the same moment the collie managed to gain the door. The doctor saw him rush through into the hall like a flash of yellow light. He shot across the oilcloth and tore up the stairs, but in another second he appeared again, flying down the steps and landing at the bottom in a tumbling heap, whining, cringing, terrified. The doctor saw him slink back into the room again and crawl around by the wall towards the cat. Was, then, even the staircase occupied? Did they stand also in the hall? Was the whole house crowded from floor to ceiling? The thought came to add to the keen distress that he felt at the sight of the collie's discomfiture. And indeed, his own personal distress had increased in a marked degree during the past minute and continued to increase steadily to the climax. He recognised that the drain on his own vitality grew steadily, and that the attack was now directed against himself even more than against the defeated dog and the too-much-deceived cat. It all seemed so rapid and uncalculated after that. The events that took place in this little modern room at the top of Putney Hill between midnight and sunrise. The doctor's silence 
was hardly able to follow and remember it all. It came about with such uncanny swiftness and terror. The light was so uncertain, the movements of the black cat so difficult to follow on the dark carpet, and the doctor himself so weary and taken by surprise that he found it almost impossible to observe accurately or to recall afterwards precisely what it was that he had seen, or in what order the incidents had taken place. He could never understand what defect of vision on his part made it seem as though the cat had duplicated itself at first, and then increased indefinitely, so that there was at least a dozen of them darting silently about the floor, leaping softly onto the chairs and tables, passing like shadows from the open door to the end of the room, all black as sin with brilliant green eyes flashing fire in all directions. It was like the reflections from a score of mirrors, placed round the walls at different angles. Nor could he make out at the time why the size of the room seemed to have altered, grown much larger, and why it extended behind him where ordinarily the wall should have been. The snarling of the enraged and terrified collie sounded sometimes so far away. The ceiling seemed to have raised itself so much higher than before, and much of the furniture had changed in appearance and shifted marvellously. It was all so confused and confusing, as though the little room he knew had become merged and transformed into the dimensions of quite another chamber that came to him with its host of cats and its strange distances in a sort of vision. But these changes came about a little later, and at the time when his attention was so concentrated upon the proceedings of Smoke and the Collie that he only observed them as it were subconsciously, and the excitement, the flickering candlelight, the distress he felt for the Collie and the distorting atmosphere of fog were the poorest possible allies to careful observation. At first he was only aware that the dog was repeating his short dangerous bark from time to time, snapping viciously at the empty air a foot or two from the ground and once, indeed, he sprang upwards and forwards, working furiously with teeth and paws, and with a noise like a wolf fighting, but only to dash back the next minute against the wall behind him. Then, after lying still for a bit, he rose to a crouching position as though to spring again, snarling horribly, and making short half-circles with his lowered head, and smoke all the while meowed piteously by the window, as though trying to draw the attack upon himself. Then it was that the rush of the whole dreadful business seemed to turn aside from the dog and direct itself upon his own person. The collie made another spring and had fallen back with a crash into the corner, where he made noise enough in his savage rage to waken the dead before he fell to whining and then finally lay still. And directly afterwards, the doctor's own distress became intolerably acute, He had made a half-movement forward to come to the rescue when a veil that was denser than mere fog seemed to drop down over the scene, draping the room, the walls, animals and fire in the midst of a darkness and folding about him like his own mind. Other forms moved silently across the field of vision, forms that he recognised from previous experiments and welcomed not. Unholy thoughts began to crowd into his brain. Sinister suggestions of evil presented themselves seductively. Ice seemed to settle about his heart, and his mind trembled. He began to lose memory. Memory of his identity, of where he was, of what he ought to do. 
the very foundations of his strength were shaken. His will seemed paralysed. And it was then that the room filled with this horde of cats, all dark as the night, all silent, all with lamping eyes of green fire. The dimensions of the place altered and shifted. He was in a much larger space. The whining of the dog sounded far away, and all about him the cats flew busily to and fro, silently playing their tearing, rushing game of evil, weaving the pattern of their dark purpose upon the floor. He strove hard to collect himself, and to remember the words of power he had made use of before in similar dread positions where his dangerous practice had sometimes led. But he could recall nothing consecutively. A mist lay over his mind and memory. He felt dazed, and his forces were scattered. The deeps within were too troubled for healing power to come out of them. It was a glamour, of course, he realised afterwards. The strong glamour thrown upon his imagination by some powerful personality behind the veil. But at the time, he was not sufficiently aware of this, and with all true glamour was unable to grasp where the true ended and the false began. He was caught momentarily in the same vortex that had sought to lure the cat to destruction through its delight, and threatened utterly to overwhelm the dog through its terror. There came a sound in the chimney behind him, like wind booming and tearing its way down. The windows rattled. The candle flickered and went out. The glacial atmosphere closed round him with the cold of death, and a great rushing sound swept by overhead as though the ceiling had lifted to a great height. He heard the door shut. Far away it sounded. He felt lost, shelterless in the depths of his soul. Yet still he held it out and resisted while the climax of the fight came nearer and nearer. He'd stepped into the stream of forces awakened by Pender, and he knew that he must withstand them to the end or come to a conclusion that it was not good for a man to come to. Something from the region of utter cold was upon him. And then, quite suddenly, through the confused mists about him, there slowly rose up the personality that had been all the time directing the battle. Some force entered his being that shook him as a tempest shakes a leaf, and close against his eyes, clean level with his face, he found himself staring into the wreck of a vast dark countenance, a countenance that was terrible even in its ruin. For ruined it was, and terrible it was, and the mark of spiritual evil was branded everywhere upon its broken features. Eyes, face and hair rose level with his own and for a space of time he could never properly measure or determine. These two, a man and a woman, looked straight into each other's visages and down into each other's hearts. And John Silence, the soul with the good, unselfish motive, held his own against the dark, disincarnate woman whose motive was pure evil, and whose soul was on the side of the dark powers. It was the climax that touched the depth of power within him and began to restore him slowly to his own. He was conscious, of course, of effort, and yet it seemed no superhuman one, for he had recognised the character of his opponent's power, and he called upon the good within him to meet and overcome it. The inner forces stirred and trembled in response to his call. They did not at first come readily, as was their habit, 
for under the spell of glamour they had already been diabolically lulled into inactivity. But come they eventually did, rising out of the inner spiritual nature he had learned with so much time and pain to awaken to life, and power and confidence came with them. He began to breathe deeply and regularly, and at the same time to absorb into himself the forces opposed to him, and to turn them to his own account. By ceasing to resist, and allowing the deadly stream to pour into him unopposed, he used the very power supplied by his adversary, and thus enormously increased his own. For this spiritual alchemy he had learned, he understood that force ultimately is everywhere one and the same. It is the motive behind that makes it good or evil, and his motive was entirely unselfish. He knew, provided he was not first robbed of self-control, how vicariously to absorb these evil radiations into himself and to charge them magically into his own good purposes. And since his motive was pure and his soul fearless, they could work no harm upon him. Thus he stood in the mainstream of evil unwittingly attracted by Pender, deflecting its course upon himself and after passing through the purifying filter of his own unselfishness, these energies could only add to his store of experience, of knowledge, and therefore of power. And as his self-centre returned to him, he gradually accomplished this purpose, even though trembling while he did so. Yet the struggle was severe, and in spite of the freezing chill of the air, the perspiration poured down his face. Then, by slow degrees, the dark and dreadful countenance faded. The glamour passed from his soul and normal proportions returned to the walls and to the ceiling, and forms melted back into the fog, and the whirl of rushing shadow-cats disappeared whence they had come. And with the return of the consciousness of his own identity, John's silence was restored to the full control of his own will-power. In a deep, modulated voice, he began to utter certain rhythmical sounds that slowly rolled through the air like a rising sea, filling the room with powerful vibratory activities that whelmed all irregularities of lesser vibration in its own swelling tone. He made certain sigils, gestures and movements at the same time. For several minutes he continued to utter these words, until at length the growing volume dominated the whole room and mastered the manifestation of all that opposed it for just as he understood the spiritual alchemy that can transmute evil forces by raising them into higher channels, so he knew from long study the occult use of sound, and its direct effect upon the plastic region wherein the powers of the spiritual evil work their fell purposes. Harmony was restored, first of all to his soul, and thence to the room and all its occupants. And after himself the first to recognise it was the old dog, lying in his corner. Flame began suddenly, uttering sounds of pleasure, that something between a growl and a grunt that dogs make upon being restored to their master's confidence. Dr. Silence heard the thumping of the collie's tail against the floor, and the grunt and the thumping touched the depth of affection in the man's heart, and gave him some inkling of what agonies the dumb creature had suffered. Next, from the shadows by the window, a somewhat shrill purring announced the restoration of the cat to its normal state. Smoke was advancing across the carpet, 
he seemed very pleased with himself, and smiled with an expression of supreme innocence. He was no shadow cat, but real, and full of his usual and perfect self-possession. He marched along, picking his way delicately, but with a stately dignity that suggested his ancestry with the majesty of Egypt. His eyes no longer glared. They shone steadily before him. They radiated, not excitement, but knowledge. Clearly, he was anxious to make amends for the mischief to which he had unwittingly lent himself owing to his subtle and electric constitution. Still uttering his sharp, high purrings, he marched up to his master and rubbed vigorously against his legs. Then he stood on his hind feet and poured his knees and stared beseechingly up into his face. He turned his head towards the corner where the collie still lay, thumping his tail feebly and pathetically. John Silence understood. He bent down and stroked the creature's living fur, noting the line of the bright blue sparks that followed the motion of his hand down its back. And then they advanced together towards the corner where the dog was. Smoke went first, put his nose gently against his friend's muzzle, purring while he rubbed, and uttering soft sounds of affection in his throat. The doctor lit the candle and brought it over. He saw the collie was lying on its side against the wall. It was utterly exhausted, and foam still hung about its jaws. Its tail and eyes responded to the sound of its name, but it was evidently very weak and overcome. Smoke continued to rub against its cheek and nose and eyes, sometimes even standing on its body and kneading into the thick yellow hair. Flame replied from time to time, by little licks of the tongue, most of them curiously misdirected. But Dr. Silence felt intuitively that something disastrous had happened, and his heart was wrung. He stroked the dear body, feeling it over for bruises or broken bones, but finding none. He fed it with what remained of the sandwiches and milk, but the creature clumsily upset the saucer, and lost the sandwiches between its paws, so that the doctor had to feed it with his own hand, and all the while smoke meowed piteously. Then John Silence began to understand. He went across to the further side of the room and called aloud to it. Flame, old man, come. At any other time, the dog would have been upon him in an instant, barking and leaping to his shoulder and even now he got up, though heavily and awkwardly, to his feet. He started to run, wagging his tail more briskly. He collided first with a chair, and then ran straight into a table. Smoke trotted close at his side, trying his very best to guide him, but it was useless. Dr. Silence had to lift him up into his own arms and carry him like a baby, for he was blind. And that's all for today, except to remind you of my Patreon account where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a classic sci-fi novel called Space Tug, Nightmare Tales by Blavatsky, and the final volume of Charles Oman's A History of the Peninsula War. If that sounds interesting, please go to patreon.com and search for me there 
F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Until next time.